was one of the most disgraceful and dishonorable ways for someone to perish. In other words, they would have been asking this question, how can Jesus be the all-powerful and mighty God when He died first, and He died so shamefully? How can a God who cannot rescue Himself from mere mortals somehow rescue others? A crucified God or Savior was a completely foreign concept or understanding to the Roman mind. It did not equate. They would have difficult putting two and two together. So Mark then, by focusing on the incredible things Jesus did, was making every effort to prove to his Roman readers that Jesus actually was not only the Christ that the Jews had been prophesying about for thousands of years, but the Son of God. And therefore, he should be followed, not mocked or rejected, as many were doing, as many do today. It is not insignificant, by the way, beloved, that Mark, near the very end of his gospel, informs us that it was a Roman soldier, a Roman soldier, a centurion, standing guard at Jesus' crucifixion, who finally came to believe and proclaim These words, truly, this man was the Son of God. Mark chapter 15, verse 39. Mark's gospel then is evangelistic in its purpose. Written in the hope that others would put two and two together and come up with the same conclusion, conviction, and confession of that Roman soldier. So when you and I are reading Mark, when we're looking at it, it's important for us in the 21st century to keep that knowledge in mind because it's going to help us understand why Mark includes or emphasizes certain things when reporting the events of Jesus' life to his original reading audience. In the story today that we have before us, it is actually Jesus' disciples, the twelve who are having trouble putting two and two together by not drawing the proper conclusions about their leader. So, let's get into the text. Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 45. It says, Immediately he made his disciples, that is Jesus, get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out in the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and round about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. 
And wherever he came in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. If you're new with us this morning, or you've just forgotten, on the inside of your bulletin, on the left side, is a sermon outline so that you can follow along. We have only two points this morning, but somehow that will still take 40 minutes to get through them. And at the top of that outline is the statement, this morning we will consider two revealing reasons for the disciples' inappropriate reaction to Jesus' self-disclosure. Self-disclosure just means he was disclosing himself, who he really was. The reason we're going to look at that is so that we might respond appropriately, as the disciples did not, we might respond appropriately to the divine revelation that, that we have received even today. So I know that's a mouthful, and I hope to make sense of it uh, through the sermon today. So before we look at the first point in the outline, we need to examine the story and a few of its details to understand what's going on. So look back at verse 45 with me. Verse 45, it says, Immediately, chapter 6, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. Jesus sends his men away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Just remember, when we say Sea of Galilee, it's a lake. It's referenced as the Sea of Galilee, but it's a lake. Now let me recap, if you weren't here, I'll recap from last week's message the events that took place prior to Jesus sending his men off in the boat that we just read about in verse 45. Last week we looked at chapter 6, verses 30 through 44. So if you weren't here, or you were here, either way, this is for you. On that same day, Jesus and his 12 disciples, looking for some much-needed rest, if you remember, from the constant stream of needy people, sailed across the Sea of Galilee and arrived on the east side. Now we have them sailing back to the west side, but here they were sailing to the east side. There they were greeted, if you remember, by a very large crowd who had followed their progress across the lake, tracking them by foot on the shoreline. And were waiting for them, Jesus and his disciples, when they got out of the boat. Upon their arrival, Jesus did not retreat, but out of compassion he stayed with the crowd and he taught them many things about the kingdom of God. We talked about that last week. It had grown late in the day. And Jesus' disciples made a suggestion to send the crowds away. This is all from the text right before this text. Why? So that they could get something to eat since there was no food available in the immediate area where the crowd had gathered in this desolate place. So what does Jesus do? Say, yeah, that's a good idea, guys. Send them away. I'm sure they're starving. No, he sees the opportunity to do something very incredible. He performs a miracle. He supernaturally multiplied five loaves of bread and two fish so that there was enough food to feed and satisfy thousands of people. Thousands of people. Now, Jesus' twelve disciples saw that miracle up close because the text tells us that they were taking the food and distributing it. So they had to go to Jesus, they they see Him doing this miracle, and then they were taking the food and distributing it to the crowds. These are the events that lead up to Mark chapter 6, verse 45. Immediately, as it says, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, 
to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowds. What crowds? The crowds that he had just fed miraculously. So, the last thing the disciples witnessed before getting into the boat was something that should have caused their brains to hurt a little. As they seriously considered what they had just witnessed Jesus do. For Jesus had the power to literally create food. Okay? You understand? Create food. If anybody had that power today, they would be the God of this world. They would be king if they had that type of power. He made something from nothing. Now, the God of the Scriptures is certainly a creator God. For the very first book of the Bible, and the very first verse of the Bible, Genesis 1.1, introduces us to God as what? The creator of the heavens and the earth. Jesus was doing what only God had been recorded to do. That's what was happening. That's how significant this event was. What were the disciples to conclude? Would they put two and two together? Would they comprehend Jesus' true identity? Mark tells us after dismissing the crowds, he went up on the mountain to pray. We just read the text. We are told, we're not told, by the way, what Jesus was praying. And I, I'll just make a note here. When the Scripture does not record something, we should be, I've said this before, we shouldn't add things to it. I've read commentaries on this. He's up on the mountain and they're coming up with all kinds of things he's praying about. It's not in the text. I mean, it's speculation, it's guessing, and I'm fine with reading it. Just realize you can't be dogmatic about what Jesus went up on the mountain to pray about. What's interesting, though, is he went up onto a mountain, which tells us that he would have been in a position to see the boat out on the lake. Just makes sense. He's a little bit higher, the boat's moving across the lake which would allow him to see his disciples, which is exactly what the text does tell us. Mark chapter 6, verse 48. Look back with, at it with me. And he saw they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. So here's the picture. It's a very long day. Jesus dismisses the crowds, dismisses his disciples, goes up to pray. He sees from his position on the mountain his disciples struggling. The wind is pressing against them. They're having a hard time getting across to the west side of the lake. Now listen, if you've been with us, you know that we've already looked at Mark chapter 4, verse 39. Maybe you remember the story where Jesus spoke to the waves, the wind and the sea, and they did what? Obeyed. Hush. Be still. Remember that? So if Jesus wanted to, if he wanted to, from the very mountaintop where he was praying, he could have just said, peace, be still. And the wind no longer would have fought his men in the boat. But he does not do that. He does not do that. Instead, the text tells us that sometime in the fourth watch, so this is where I was telling you, this is a Roman accounting. They divided the night into four sections. So, 
Not that it's super important, but the first section was 6 to 9 p.m., then 9 to 12 p.m., then 12 to 3 a.m., then 3 to 6 a.m. So the fourth watch would have been sometime after 3 a.m. We're told that Jesus makes his way to his disciples. So you can imagine it's been a very long day for those poor disciples. They originally, remember, the day before, came over to the other side just to get some rest, and they had, they had no rest at all. Jesus goes to his disciples, beloved. How? Don't answer it. Here's how he doesn't go. Not by boat, not by jet ski, but by walking on the sea. As if it were land. As if it were land. Now there's an additional phrase at the end of verse 48. You know what I think? I think what happens is we miss this. We miss it because... If we've been around Christianity, even if we haven't been around Christianity, we've heard somebody say, oh yeah, you think you're perfect? Try walking on water, right? We've heard that line and we go, what's that mean? You know, because Jesus walked on water. And we've heard it so many times that it almost just grows cold to us. But to the readers in Rome, it would have been shocking. It would have floored them. It would have pushed them back in their seats. Who does that sort of thing? Who walks on water? This phrase here in verse 48, it says, He meant to pass by them. I want to look at that with you. After that in verse 49, it says, But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and they cried out. This phrase has caused a a little confusion in, in understanding the story properly. Some have suggested, believe it or not, that Jesus wanted to sneak by them and playfully surprise them on the other side. Look what I can do. <laughs> I bet you guys wonder how I got here. Uh, I, and, and they're doing that in an attempt to explain this phrase, pass by. Because it says he intended to pass by. So they're trying to figure out why. Well, that, it doesn't fit. It doesn't make any sense. And it's uncharacteristic of Jesus Christ. He's not playing games. He's not using his, his powers to to wow his disciples in that way. Some believe the phrase refers to the disciples' actually mistaken impression that Jesus meant to pass by. In other words, Mark's recording what they thought, but he never really intended to pass by. Again, they're trying to understand how this makes sense. Why would Jesus want to pass by his disciples? They're out. He saw them from the mountain. They're out in the boat. They're having some trouble. Why would he leave them there? Uh, The only problem with that interpretation is the text doesn't say that. It doesn't say this was the disciples' understanding. It actually says that Jesus' intentions, his desire, his purpose, was to pass by them. So, what is going on exactly? Part of the problem, I think, is our understanding of the English word or words here, pass by. Those two words are used to translate the original word in the Greek. Possibly when you and I think of pass by, we picture passing someone on the freeway, leaving them in our dust as we hurry to get wherever it is we just must be at that moment. Pass by, gone, woo, just leave them behind us, okay? But the original word here that is translated pass by literally means to come near or aside. To come near or aside As an example, to approach. To approach. One commentator says it would be better, instead of saying pass by, 
and under, misunderstanding that, to understand it in this sense, pass before or pass in view of rather than go beyond. Pass before, pass in view of rather than go beyond. In other words, Jesus was not using his gravity-defying power because he was hoping to beat the disciples to the other side of the lake. But instead, he was purposefully continuing the work of disclosing and reaffirming his divine nature to his disciples by again doing something in front of them that a normal man could not do. This then, beloved, if you understand it correctly, is not primarily a rescue story. Again, I've seen commentators look at this and go, Jesus saw his poor men out on the sea, and now he's come to rescue them. Well, he didn't have to come to rescue them. If he, if he wanted to rescue them, he could have done that just by telling the sea to be quiet. Beyond that, the text doesn't say that they were, their lives were in danger. Remember when we look back at Mark 4 and that boat scene on the lake, their lives were seriously in danger. Water was making its way up onto the boat. They knew that if something didn't happen soon, they were going to drown and die. And then Jesus stops all that in a moment. But here, the text just says they were struggling. You know, the wind was beating against the boat. They weren't about to die. So this is not primarily a rescue story. Rather, this story reveals an amazing truth about Jesus and it also reveals a failure on the part of his disciples to fully grasp that truth that Jesus was trying to show them. Now look back at the text with me. Mark chapter 6, verse 49. It says, But when they saw him walking on the sea, they said, Look, there's Jesus. Come over to me. No, it doesn't say that, right? When they saw him on the sea, they thought it was a ghost, and they, they cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. Now, I don't want you to miss something here or misunderstand something. The moonlight was not playing tricks on their eyes. It wasn't making Jesus look, because of the way the light reflected on the water, somehow Jesus looked like a ghost. That's not what's going on. They all saw Jesus. It says all of them. This is not one man's hallucinations. They all saw Jesus. But guess what? They would not believe that it was him. They would not. Since they were out in the middle of the water. And as far as they knew, living men don't walk on water. So the only conclusion they can come up with is it must have been a ghost. Let me um, try to illustrate this. This is probably a poor illustration, but work with me. Give me some grace. You know, I, any of you watch Biggest Loser? Oh, okay, great. Nobody. All right, you, my wife, that's great. Biggest Loser is a show about people who come on to the show and they're, they're trying to lose a lot of weight. They're trying to be the biggest loser of their weight. And... I do watch the show because I just think it's cool, you know, to see these people press on and do these things. One of the, the part I love, I don't like any of the other drama and all that stuff. I don't like any of it. The part I love is the before and after. I love that. 
they'll show this person. Here's how they, they came in at 400, 450, and then they're weighing in at 170 or 200. And the, the, it, if they did not tell you, if they did not tell you that person was that person, I would have, you would sometimes have a very hard time to believing that because the transformation is so different. And what happens is your mind has already preconceived ideas about what Bob or Joe or whatever looks like. And so it almost won't allow you to accept anything other than what you have already made them to be in your mind. In the same way of sorts, the disciples had already in their mind determined what it was Jesus could and couldn't do based on who they thought he was, which was limiting. And therefore, when they see Jesus walking on the water, there was no way that their mind was going to let them say or believe that this was actually him. Supposedly, there was a local rumor that the last thing a boatman saw before drowning in Galilee was a ghost on the water. Maybe that added to their fear. I I don't know. The text doesn't say. But Jesus is quick to calm down his men by speaking to them and reassuring them, guys, it's me. It really is me. The story could have ended there, right? It could have just ended right there. But then Mark goes one step further and informs us about why the men responded the way they did. And that brings us to our first point. Look at the outline. Reason number one. Reason number one. They missed the message of the miracle. They missed the message of the miracle. Look back at the text with me. Mark chapter 6, verse 51 through 52. It says, And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. Why? Why were they utterly astounded, Mark? I'll tell you. For, which another way you can say for is because, this is why, for they did not understand about the loaves. Hmm. It's odd. Sitting with them in the boat, they know he's not a ghost. Okay? There he is. But they're still astounded. At this point, they're still astounded. The winds died. No issues there. The word for astounded literally means out of their minds. Out of their minds. And when you add the word utterly, utterly astounded, it means they were exceedingly out of their minds. Exceedingly out of their minds. One writer says, These men had no categories to draw from for understanding Jesus' presence in their boat. It does not compute. We cannot put two and two together. Their thinking may have been something like this. He's here. (laughs) There's no denying that. It is the same Jesus we left on land before we set sail, but now he's in our boat. How is that possible? How is that possible? Is there any way that they could have expected such a thing of Jesus? That's the question. Is there any way? And Mark suggests the answer is yes. He says yes. Look back at the text. They were, verse 52, 51, they were utterly astounded. 
And you think that's acceptable. But Mark says that's not really acceptable. Here's why they were utterly astounded. Because they did not understand about the loaves. Meaning that they should have, and if they did, the result would have been different. So what in the world do these two events have in common? And what did they not understand? That's the question that you, you would ask as you look at the text. Obviously, they were there when Jesus had recently performed the food miracle. We just talked about it. And they knew firsthand that Jesus fed thousands of people with five loaves and two fish. What is there left to understand? Additionally, Mark is tying these events together by saying, if they had truly understood the loaves, then they would have responded differently to Jesus walking on the water. Remember, Remember what I started the message with. Mark primarily wrote this gospel for Roman unbelievers who struggled to acknowledge that Jesus was more than just a good man. They struggled with that. To them, the idea of a crucified Savior did not fit. A crucified God? How is that possible? Mark here gives his readers insight into what might prevent someone, even Jesus' disciples at this point in their ministry, from fully embracing Jesus in all His glory as the very Son of God. In a sense, Mark is saying, don't miss the significance of all that Jesus did like His disciples did here. Jesus' miracles were not done so people could marvel Ooh, wow. Look at that. I wonder what else he can do. But they were instructive revelations that had a divine message. The miracle of the lows, as I said earlier, was an act of creation. Creating something from nothing, placing Jesus in the same category as God. As did his forgiveness of sins in Mark chapter 2, verse 10. Maybe you don't remember, it was many weeks ago. But Jesus forgave a paralytic of his sins. And the response, and it was right from the crowd, was, who can forgive sins but God alone? Bingo! That's the point! But you guys are missing it. Or, just recently in chapter 4, verse 39, when Jesus exercised His authority over nature itself. Something that everyone knew God could do. But a man? It would not be difficult, beloved, to accept the idea that God could be walking on the water. That's not unreasonable. But it would be nearly impossible to accept that a man, or even a great prophet, could do the same thing. The disciples failed to understand what the multiplying loaves were saying or teaching them about Jesus. That's the point. That's the point. Beloved, people still today miss the message of God's miracles all the time. Just consider the way most people in our culture celebrate Christmas and Easter. You have two miracles there. The miracle of the incarnation, God born as in flesh, coming to the world, the incarnation. 
And you have the resurrection. Physical body getting up out of the grave, rising again. They miss it. They miss it, suggested by their actions that Santa and the Easter Bunny are the heroes of these holidays. That's them, okay? I want to talk to Christians today. Is it possible for those who claim to follow Christ, us Christians, to miss the main point or message in some way of Jesus' miraculous work on the cross? And as a result, we too fail to respond appropriately to Him. I just want you to think about that. And I'll move on and come back to that. Mark gives another reason for why the disciples responded like they did. That also explains why they failed to understand the real significance of the miracle of Jesus feeding the crowds with five loaves and two fish. Reason number two, their hearts were hardened to Him. Look back at the text with me. Mark chapter 6, 51. Second part, they were utterly astounded for they did not understand about the loaves and Mark adds this, but their hearts were hardened. Whoa. It is shocking, beloved, that Mark would use this phrase to describe the twelve who were faithfully following after Jesus because it is the same exact phrase that he uses in Mark chapter 3. Just if you're in your Bibles, flip back to the left. We've, we've looked at this. Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Same phrase. Let's see how it's used in this context. Chapter 3, verse 1. Again, he entered the synagogue, that is Jesus, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they, that is the Pharisees, or the religious leaders of the day, watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might worship him? <laughs> no. So that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Verse 6, The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. So in this story, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, could not care less about Jesus' miracles or what they meant. But they hoped He would do one in order to accuse Him of violating their law that forbid helping this man on the Sabbath. They were determined to destroy Him. And Mark says, Jesus was grieved by the hardness of their heart. Okay? In Ephesians chapter 4, you don't have to turn there, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 and 18, in this text in the New Testament, Paul exhorts Christian brothers and sisters to godly living. And he uses this phrasing, hardness of heart. Verse 17, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding alienated from the life of God. This does not sound good. Because of the ignorance that is in them due to the what? 
their hardness of heart. These are unbelievers now. And in Mark 8, 17, and we'll get there in eventually a few weeks, Jesus uses this phrase in a question addressed again to His disciples, to His very confused disciples. And He says these words, quote, Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? And then again He references the miracles of the loaves. One writer says, The condition of hardened hearts refers to disobedience, dullness, and obstinacy. That's stubbornness. And is the predicament the condition of Jesus' opponents? The disciples, he says, are drawing closer to Jesus' opponents than to Jesus in their life stance at this moment. That's what's going on. One writer comments, this verse here in Mark 6.52 where he says it was due to the hardness of the heart, their hearts contains one of the harshest statements about the disciples' lack of understanding. Even so, they were still followers of Jesus and not His enemies. Yes, they were His followers. They were. But their hardness of heart was keeping them from rightly understanding the vital message that their Master was trying to teach them. When you look at Mark 6, 53-55, just look back at this, and the story picks up again. Read it with me. When they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and, and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. You know, there's a little of irony going on here. You got Jesus out on the water. His men don't recognize him. They think he's a ghost. But he arrives on the, the land. And of course, everyone immediately recognizes Jesus, which is, which is not unexpected because he had been in the area for some time now doing ministry. So when it says they recognized him, it, it'd be like, for those of you who don't know me, you don't really know me, but you see my face and then you see me at Ralph's or Costco or something like that, and you could say, you, you recognize me, but, but do, would you really know who I was? And did they really know who he was? Like Jesus' disciples, who in spite of the overwhelming evidence, had mentally placed limitations on Jesus' nature, and therefore what he could do, these sick people had limited Jesus in their minds by viewing him simply as a compassionate man that had the power to work mighty miracles. One writer says this, in the zeal with which the people brought their sick to Jesus, we recognize not only how deeply the untiring goodness of Jesus touched Israel, but also how distant Israel remained from Jesus because it sought him, sought from him nothing but the healing of their sick. That's it. That's all, as far as they were concerned, that's all he could do. And he was so much more. 
One man said, and I agree, discipleship is more endangered, and this is for you now. This is where we take this story and begin to to draw it to us in our situation. Discipleship is more endangered by hardness of heart than by external dangers. Did you hear that? I'm sure you did because I might, but I'll try it again. Discipleship is more endangered by hardness of heart than external, outside dangers. In other words, we, we usually worry so much about attacks from the outside. But really, we should be more concerned about issues on the inside. The conditions of our hearts before God. Are they hearts to any degree that are hard, stubborn, rebellious, and impenetrable? Are they keeping out like block walls any of the rich truths that Jesus Christ has revealed to us through His incredible acts recorded in the Bible? Most importantly, beloved, for you and I, the acts that He performed at the cross. I said we would consider two revealing reasons for the disciples' inappropriate reaction to Jesus' self-disclosure that we, here, might respond appropriately to the divine revelation we have received. Stay with me. You with me, Mary? The greatest divine revelation we have received to date has not come from Jesus walking on water or feeding the multitudes or healing the sick or even raising the dead. These things are incredible. And people still misunderstand or miss their meaning. But by far, the most supreme revelation has come to us through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Beloved, you know that people all around us do in part, do in part to the, to the hardness of their heart, entirely miss the significance of that event, believing Jesus was nothing more than a, a helpless victim and that the resurrection just a fable invented by His fanatic followers. They continue to their demise, to put two and two together and see how this event solely is the key to their transformation, their forgiveness, their freedom, their peace, and their joy that they are seeking for in all the wrong places. That's them. What about us? This morning I want us as Christians, to consider, even if it's just for a moment, if we are really grasping what Jesus has revealed to us through His cross, and as a result, are responding appropriately to it and to Him? Or do we also fail? To some degree, to put two and two together, when it comes to understanding the full message and revelation contained in Jesus' death and resurrection on our behalf. So I want to look at this one passage with you as we get ready to close here. 
And what I mean by close is not that you close your Bibles, but that we're almost through with the sermon. But I hope this continues on in your hearts after we're done. If you would, turn to Titus chapter 2, page 998. It's in the New Testament. Titus chapter 2. Just going to read and look at verses 11 through 14 and make a few comments for you to meditate upon the issue before us this morning. Page 998 in those blue Bibles. Paul says, the Apostle Paul, says these words, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Just so you know, just we're not going to exegete this whole text. I just want you to see some things here. The grace of God that has appeared, that has brought salvation, is the grace of God displayed in the death of His Son, Jesus Christ, on a cross and His resurrection three days later, proving His power over sin and death and the satisfaction that God received in His substitutionary death for our sins. That is the grace of God that the writer is talking about. That's what's appeared. And it is that grace that makes salvation available for all people, all types of people, people everywhere. But here's the key. Yeah, we get that. Yeah, Jeremy, we know. You know, we know. We've heard it. You say it so much. We Come on. We know Jesus. He died in, on the cross and resurrected the third day. And, right? This is where it gets interesting. Verse 12. See, because that's the revelation in verse 11. That's the divine revelation that, unfortunately, the world is missed. But tragically, Christians to some degree miss all that that revelation is teaching us, is telling us, is communicating to us. And Paul says here, that grace of God that has appeared, it's doing something or it should be doing something. And here's what it's doing. It's training us. Maybe your translation says teaching or another way to say it is instructing. It has a message that we are, or sometimes, miss. And it is this, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us. Why? To redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession, ownership, who are zealous, crazy about good works. Beloved, yeah, it's gone, but possession... Possession. Did you catch that word? He died to possess us. This is not like, you know, demon possession. We're not talking about that. It means to own us, to have us as His own. 
That we are no longer our own, but we are His. He paid the price. He bought us in full. Now, I don't know about you, but if you own something, it means you have rights to do with it what you want. Right? And the thing itself actually has no rights. Because you own it. It is yours. And we miss it. The church is missing it. They think Jesus is something you add on. You know, hey, i got me and my own life. I'm doing my own thing. Oh yeah, I don't want to go to hell. I'll add Jesus on. And He's my get out of hell ticket. Yeah, but... Um, <clears throat> He, um, he didn't die so that you could continue to do your own thing and you wouldn't have to go to hell when you died. He, he, actually, he actually died to purchase you. So you don't, you, it's not you doing your own thing. He wants you over here doing His thing. Miss it. We miss it. We miss it. When we do not reject an abandoned beloved, this is what the text is saying, when we do not, you and I as Christians, when we do not, when I do not, reject and abandon ungodliness and the sinful passions of this world. Does that need explanation? Is that hard to understand? Is that, well, that's your interpretation. Well, what else, how else are you going to interpret it? Ungodliness and sinful passions. We know what those are, don't we? We're familiar with them. When we live without self-control, being controlled by God and His Spirit, when we practice sin or live in a way that could be defined as unrighteous or ungodly, anyway, beloved, this is not, this is not, hey, I don't kill people. Unrighteous or ungodly can mean slander, gossip, bitterness, unforgiveness, coveting, you know those things? You know the ones that we can hide in our hearts and no one can see them? Or, we stop looking and hoping for the return of our great Savior. Our eyes are drawn downward, not upward. We're not looking forward. We're looking at the here and now. Or, we neglect the truth that His death was not just to save us from hell, as I've already said, but also to set us free from the power of sin. Christians will say, I can't, I can't overcome this thing. You missed it. You missed it. You missed the message of the cross. You missed the revelation of the cross. He's already done it. He's already overcome and conquered sin. Now you just have to believe it. And beyond that, He empowers us through the cross to live enthusiastically for Jesus Christ. Do you see it says zealous for good works? Zealous for good works? Why, why do Christians act like this? Yeah, I'm a Christian. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's miserable. missed it. When these things happen, it is an indication we are missing the real message of the cross. 
who Jesus is and what He has already accomplished. And we need to, beloved, we need to consider the possibility that we are resisting what it is telling us because of the stubbornness and hardness and disobedience of our hearts. And the way we should respond is to repent, submit our minds, our emotions, our will to what God has said in His Word and revealed through His Son. Barring from Mark's comments, I might say something like this. People, even Christians, fail to respond appropriately to Jesus with joyful obedience and transform lives because they do not fully understand the cross. But their hearts are hardened. Beloved, we would love to talk to you more about the message of the cross if you're if maybe you don't even know what it is. Or maybe you're a Christian and, and I'll tell you that in many places who, who say they meet together to lift up the one who died on that cross, the message is muddy to me. It's muddy. It's watered down. And so in many situations, people are just confused. Listen, we would love to talk to you more about the message of the cross. If you're confused anywhere, you have questions. So before you leave today, let us know that. Put it on the connection card. Come up and talk to somebody. Talk to us. But right now I'm going to pray, and then I'll talk a little bit more, and then we'll have a closing song. Let's pray. Father God, I thank You for bringing Your people out today and for exposing us to Your Word Father, for giving it to us, that we we have it, we can read from it, it's in our language. Father, where we can freely meet without fear of someone coming in and shutting us down and, and burning these books. So, Father, I rejoice because we know that it is through Your Word, through receiving it, through accepting it, through bowing to it, through obeying it, that we are changed and transformed into the people You want us to be like Your Son, Jesus Christ. So Father, help us even now. Would Your Spirit work in and among us to convict us, Father, in the areas where we are missing it, where we are not being transformed, where we have completely neglected the whole point of the cross, not just to save people from Your wrath, but to change them for Your glory. Help us, Father, because we are blockheads. May your Spirit bust through all that and do His work. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.